welcome to the Supergirl Supercast. I'm Trishy Matson, And I'm David Schaub. And today we're going to be talking about Crisis on Infinite Earths, parts one, two, and three. We're going to break it down by parts instead of trying to do the whole thing together. So, David, why don't you tell us what happened on part one, which was also Supergirl season five, episode nine. Part one recap. The multiverse is being wiped out by an antimatter wave. Argo City is the first to fall, but Jonathan is launched into a wormhole, and the Monitor saves Kal-El and Lois. Superman, Arrow, Flash, Batwoman, White Canary, and Adam come to fight on Earth-38. Baby Jonathan is rescued from a sad Oliver on Earth-16. While those heroes fight to protect a tower, Alex, Lena, Brainy, and Nia help open a portal to transport about half of Earth-38's population to Earth-1. Somehow, Oliver's sacrifice saved one billion people. I have so many questions about this plot. (laughs) A lot of questions in this episode. I think, just as far as practicality goes, if three billion people got transported to another Earth just in the spaceships that the refugee aliens on Earth had brought. I can kind of understand why people would be so upset about the alien population problem if there were that many alien refugees on Earth. And that many spaceships. The Earth should be just covered with alien spaceships. I I would like to think that this is the episode that's wrong, not the rest of Supergirl. I think that's the fair angle to take, that the inconsistencies and strangeness and crisis are crisis's fault, (laughs) not the world building in general. The reality of that many spaceships and that many aliens has truly not been communicated to us, even in an entire season where they were clearly uh, a moderately large minority group that could be attacked. But wow, what a plot. I think I'd like to start with just the concept of the multiverse. Okay. The thing that I think is most cool about this multiverse is that really every story has its own multiverse. I adore the fact that not only is this a story, the Arrowverse story, but it is also a multiverse that includes every other story that they can get their hold of the IP. And even some that they don't. (laughs) It's hard to say, but... The fact that everything that happens in the show, of course, doesn't affect any of those stories. It's not canon outside of this story. Therefore, there are, in fact, a multiverse of multiverses. And it gets very meta very quickly. But like the intro to this first episode, there are some beautiful things that it allows when you can just arbitrarily dip into IP however you want and affect things however you want. I really enjoyed that aspect of this series. I just had a lot of fun watching all of the cameos from various shows from all the way back to, you know, Batman 60s TV show with Burt Ward. Holy crimson skies of death. (laughs) To Smallville, to Lucifer, which is, you know, a DC property, but which is running on Fox, not the CW. Not Fox anymore. Um, Netflix now, I guess. It just gets deeper and deeper, depending on your interpretation of some of these universes. And I would think for most of them, they have the IP, but maybe not quite. (laughs) 
It was just so much fun, you know, identifying people. The trivia quiz master was uh, played by the guy who plays Arthur yep. on the Tick series on Amazon, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, there are lists online of all the cameos, but, you know, not just the joy of spotting them, but the joy of how playful it all felt with so many different timelines and storylines uh, all mixing together in this. I had a great deal of fun watching it, just for that aspect alone. Is it silly fan service? Oh yeah. But does it work? For the most part, absolutely. And that is where this comes together, and they did really quite a stunning job. There are references within references, and it is a truly quite an enjoyable experience. I have to say, my bar coming into this was not very high. I was hopeful, but the last crossover, which was just a setup for this, I really did not like. Right. And while I have some serious plot issues and character even issues in this show, I found these three episodes, maybe four if you include Black Lightning on the Edge, remarkably fun and remarkably good. From the start where they give us all these wonderful different Earths to all the way where we even get to see a Will Wheaton playing a doomsayer and being rescued by Supergirl. Yes. <laughs> I found it definitely lived up to my hopes that had been raised this season from all the uh, teases and reefers and trailers that we saw. I uh, was also very disappointed with last year's crossover, but I'm so happy so far with parts one through three plus Black Lightning, and I'm eagerly anticipating what they're going to do with it in, I believe, parts four and five in January. I do not know. Also, I've had finished roughly half of the comic up to around the same point in time in the story, so there are some interesting changes and differences, some of which work and some of which really don't make any sense. But we can uh, sort of cover that as we go too. Let's see. So um, I loved the callback to the original Superman movie when Argo was about to be destroyed. And so Elora showed them the pod and Clark and Lois were putting baby Jonathan into the pod. I heard somewhere else that they actually used some of the same lines from the original Chris Reeves Superman movie. I thought that scene was well done, and I enjoyed the callback, and it certainly addressed the urgency of what was about to happen with Argo going first, and then Brainy says, we're next. Absolutely. I quite liked the intensity of our slightly unstable Brainy, mm -hmm. including the ridiculous super science line of, it is hurtling through space at an impossible speed. It will hit the edge of the universe, at which point it will boomerang back. <laughs> Which I almost could cope with, and that was fine. But the point where they asked what was on the trajectory of it, and they said just one planet. And at that point, I'm going, okay, wait a second. You got a wave going through the entire universe, and you're saying it's only going to hit one planet for a while? The machinations to make Argo City a pertinent place, I think just shows how bizarrely Earth-centric all of the storyline is. Right. The universe is dying, all the universes are dying, and they can barely lift their heads above what's happening on planet Earth. <laughs> to be fair, that's our home, but it does feel a little small-minded. <laughs> yes, right. I mean, I believe 
so far that the um, Supergirl Earth is the only one where we've even had any contact with other life, extraterrestrials. So, I mean, you can understand why the Arrow Earth doesn't pay much attention to the other worlds, because they don't really know about life on other worlds. But yeah... (laughs) It is very, very Earth-centric, but, you know, that's the lens through which these stories are told. Yeah, Superman and Supergirl, as a function of being alien refugees, can't help but bring in some context there. But maybe that context was lost a little. I also really wonder, there's a bunch of things with Jonathan, the little baby, other than just being used for comedy relief very well, mind you. I don't quite know whether Jonathan will matter later in the story. In the original comic, there is a child of Lex Luthor, who in that comic, we also get a scene of a child being put into a machine and sent away so that the child can survive, though the entire universe is destroyed. But in that case, the child is the baby of Lex Luthor. (laughs) So we get the Luthers sending their baby into another universe in order to take part of that plot. But then again, mirroring Superman. So everyone likes playing with the baby being sent away and they do it in both the comic and the tv show and it's perfectly well done right well of course it's a long time trope before superheroes ever appeared the uh, magical destiny baby but it is interesting to see how it plays out in different ways we then get a whole pile of heroes being plucked out and showing up almost all earth one heroes at this point and being pulled into earth 38 because this is the supergirl episode It took me a moment to try and figure out who Mia was, because I don't follow Arrow, and that was confusing. Is it correct that she was born in 2019, but she's from 2040, so she's 21 years old? Yes. Okay. (laughs) The monitor had gone into the future and plucked her and her brother, who isn't in crisis, from the future and brought them back to the present for um, for reasons that I forget. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's probably okay. One of the challenges I think I find in this episode is a lot of the Arrow-centric content doesn't draw me in, and I just don't know how much of that is a function of me not watching Arrow or a function of I just don't understand why any of these characters are doing anything they're doing. So we'll see going forward. Yeah, I I have watched the last couple of Arrow episodes because the whole season has been leading up to crisis stuff, and it wasn't hard to drop in and watch. But yeah, there are certainly some unspoken things going on in uh, Crisis that it helps if you have either watched the episodes or listened to the Biff cast. So we do end up with all the heroes, and I do quite like Brainy's response to Batwoman, which is his line, this one speaks to rabbits. (laughs) Right. Well, I really enjoyed that, uh, you know, Batwoman's first reaction basically is punching Lila or Harbinger um, because uh, (laughs) that rabbit was about to talk to me. (laughs) Which, taken out of context for everybody else in the room, of course, was an amazing line. (laughs) But yeah, uh, Kate is very goal-focused, and that was the most important thing, not that she had been suddenly teleported to this other world. One interesting aspect of the crossover that really could have 
some long-term effects on some shows is boy is everyone loosey-goosey with their secret identities in these things oh yeah i mean supergirl trusting everyone in this room with her life but you know she didn't say and my secret identity (laughs) but kate just pulls off the mask i quite like how her eye makeup and eyeshadow vanish at the same time as her cowl is removed i'm very impressed with that mask (laughs) yes (laughs) but that's the thing though because not only is she telling that to all these people but if that affects all of their worlds too, because anyone knowing that Kate Kane is Batwoman pretty quickly knows, even as it's discussed later, that Bruce Wayne is Batman. So it's like a whole pile of chain of secret identities comes out, even if they try and put a lantern on it with Lex later on. Yeah. Oh, well. Exactly. There's a lot of shorthand and a lot of the only way anyone walks around in these things is by teleporting. They just do not have time for filler or for figuring out how anyone gets from point A to point B. They will simply teleport. <laughs> Which is fine. You know, we have a lot of plot to get through. And I don't mind, you know, if if they tried to explain everything, then this would have been six hours long instead of three hours long. It's true. And uh, you can pretty much get the sense of what's going on. Uh, even if you don't catch all the references. Though I could say that later on in this episode, I don't understand how this tower works, and I don't think anyone else does either. Even logistically. (laughs) I don't think it makes any sense. There's some points where maybe it is rushed too much, because the thing that is motivating people doesn't even make any sense, and that's a little more dangerous in the plot. Yeah, but on the other hand, I don't really care about the tower at all. I care about the character interactions. In the comic, because they want so many more superheroes to show up, if only for a few frames to get their name called out, there's also way more towers that are being defended. So there's all these different teams defending different towers. And in here, there's only a reference to additional towers. We don't actually ever see any. So it definitely reduces the scope that we're seeing here. For the secret identities, I think they want to take people out of their masks because it allows them to act more. It saves on makeup time. But sometimes I just think, just let them keep their mask on and act through it. And I think that may still be a more reasonable approach. Mm -hmm. Well, let's see. I enjoyed... Ollie being so indignant when Barry told him that Barry was going to die too, and Ollie just starts yelling into the sky, We had a deal! We need to talk right now! (laughs) Which, interestingly, the monitor actually listens and pulls him into his little monitor stand. Right, and I can sympathize with monitors sort of explanation that, you know, we had a deal then and your friends got a whole extra year of life after solving that crisis, but this is now. We also get this thing where the monitor knows an aspect of the future. He like, he knows this is the path I'd like to follow. Mm -hmm. But sometimes knowing the future does not mean understanding the future. So they never go to the point where they make it feel like the monitor knows everything that's going to happen. Therefore, it's obvious. Everything's still a little loose and it means you never feel like you're locked into fate, even though I don't think that would have really hurt. Then the next thing that comes up is something that I really enjoyed in this episode. From a Supergirl perspective, we got some 
really good Lena moments where Alex goes and grovels to Lena and says, we need your help creating portals and stuff to help rescue people. And please, 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 (laughs) will you put your feelings aside? And Lena says, basically, I don't want your apology. You're all awful. But of course, I will help. (laughs) The thought that I wouldn't help is just hybris on your part. And you've made it clear how little you think of me. And she just really grinds it in magnificently that, once again, Lena is not a villain. At least not to herself. But definitely not your friend. (laughs) But, oh, definitely not your friend. (laughs) There's two scenes where she does this, and I think I preferred the second scene more. But in my notes I have, only Lena could make someone giving an apology and asking for help sound like an insult. Yeah, she's kind of right. Alex thought of it as groveling, but it did kind of imply that she still thought Lena was a villain. And, you know, why wouldn't Lena try to help save most of the people of Earth? And herself. And herself. What's the motivation (laughs) not to here? You have to be pretty far gone to uh, be all for the Anti-Monitor's plan here. I did have more thoughts and more notes about how ridiculous it is that they're trying to send three billion people to Earth-1. I don't quite know what type of horrible calamity it is to double the population of Earth in one day. It sounds dangerous. But rather than trying to consider that this entire plot of saving all these people is entirely irrelevant to the storyline, and the Monitor obviously is just putting up with them, it isn't nearly as bad as what happens later, what people do instead of actually trying to fix the problem, (laughs) that uh, maybe it's just okay. It seems bizarre to me that considering that everything they have to do later on is to try and save Earth-38 anyway, why does it matter them saving these people? It's the the scale of the disaster is problematic to me because an individual life is worth almost nothing, but really three billion people is almost nothing in comparison to the entire universe is being destroyed. Right. The quadrillion upon quadrillion lives being lost. Right. All the planets in the Supergirl universe, not just Earth, are lost, but they're only focused on saving those three billion people. It feels like a drop in the bucket, which is really strange, but that, that is the side effect. Why aren't they trying to find a plan to actually help the problem at this point? It feels a little bit like they're um, treading water. Right. The Monitor had told people Earth-38 is where we're going to make our stand, but really? that was kind of stupid because <laughs> I think he said that at the very beginning. Yeah, uh, let's see. 38 was the tipping point is how he described it. That's in my notes that Earth-38 is where the Monitor wanted them to make their stand. But maybe if they were able to actually defend the tower, it would have been better. Yeah. But then they should have had all of their heroes defending the tower. Right. This show has a lot of splitting the party problem, Mm -hmm. where if everyone is actually in the right place, maybe things could have gone better or different. I don't understand some things about the fight in the tower. And some of that is just why weren't more people defending it? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Does anything really matter? You can get very nihilistic about this series. Well, uh, let's see. One thing that matters a little bit that we got shown in this show is that Supergirl has more strength or endurance or something than Superman does. The Tyler Hecklin Superman. Because when they were using their heat vision or whatever to power up the tower. He blacked out a second before she did. And I think they made some reference to, you know, how she's a little bit stronger or or more powerful or something than he is, which I thought was interesting. Universally, Supergirl is generally viewed as being more solar efficient. She is able to collect more sun energy and convert it into more power energy. That's not uncommon, and it's perfectly consistent with how Supergirl is presented. But also, speaking of being 
powerful and efficient. Uh, you really have to be staggered by Oliver's amazing breath control because the monitor says that a billion people survived because Ollie fought to his last breath and then the monitor brings him in and Oliver has room for quite a few dying words with the remainder of that dying breath. <laughs> with all his goodbye speeches. Could have saved a few more billion people. <laughs> There's only two fights for the tower, effectively. There's one fight that's inside the tower, I think. And then they give up and then they fight either on the roof of the tower or really just the roof of a building nearby the tower. I really don't understand what the army is trying to get to. So I don't understand how his sacrifice is making a difference. This one archer on the, on top of a building is stopping the army from doing what? What were they trying to do? And that's sort of where the motivation kind of lost me. Because yes, he fought a little longer up there until he got hammered down. But was he accomplishing up there? What was he stopping? And then I thought it would be nice if they had sort of given me a widget on the wall or something. <laughs> just something to say, like, this is what they were trying to get to and what he was trying to stop. And such that a billion people got saved. I think uh, they were trying to take down the tower itself because the tower was impeding them from just overwhelming the earth somehow. I just don't see how him standing nearby the tower or even on the top of the tower impacts that. I don't know. Allow me to advise you to just move on. Oh, <laughs> uh, that is the right answer. Don't worry your little head about it. It's <laughs> it's fine. There's plenty more plot to uh, focus on besides that. <laughs> there are weirder things yet to come. It's true. It's true. I could mention that they build one portal on top of the city. And while Lena had built the portal for the Daxomites, it maybe took her weeks, months to build that portal. Whereas here in some unknown amount of real time, she builds one big portal on top of the city of which three billion people fly through from all over the planet. This rescue thing just doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, you know, she worked out all the engineering stuff in uh, episode uh, in that season. So she's just reusing it? Now she just needed to scale it up. I suppose. <laughs> Maybe she did open a portal in, around every city. We don't know that she didn't. Right. One last thing, which is at the end of the episode, we get Nash showing up in his form as Pariah. And this is an interesting casting and initial choice. It gives the guy who gets to act all these different characters another kind of different character to act. But I don't quite understand what Pariah is in this. In the comic, Pariah basically is the person who shows up right before your Earth gets wiped out by the anti-matter wave. And so he basically shows up, he gets to talk to people and say how everything's going badly, and then everyone dies, and he gets to watch them die, and then he's <laughs> teleported off to go watch another Earth die. And that's sort of what he's doing, and they kind of say that's what Pariah does, is he's bearing witness to this horrible thing. But that's not actually what Pariah does in these three parts. As far as I can tell, Pariah in these three parts says some creepy things and does whatever he wants. Yeah... I can only hope that he will make a little more sense in parts four and five, because as it is, it seems like he's just getting positioned to do something without actually doing anything. It's possible his... His action at the end of part three might be the only action that mattered, but we'll see. Hmm. I think it's interesting that everyone assumes Oliver is being killed off in this show, and therefore this is really a fake out of Oliver dying, or is it? I can't quite tell. Well, the monitor says this isn't the way that 
Oliver was supposed to go, not the way that he foresaw. And uh, as we'll find out, this isn't the last we're seeing of Oliver. Nope, there is more Oliver to come. Shall we move on to part two? Let's. Part two recap. The heroes use a wave rider from Earth-74 as a base. The monitor tells them they need to find seven paragons, but doesn't say why or how. They know that Kara is the paragon of hope and Sarah is the paragon of destiny. Batwoman and Kara are sent to meet a sad Batman to discover that Kate is the paragon of courage after killing sad Batman. Superman, Lois, and Iris chase after Lex, who's on a Superman murder spree across the multiverse, to find a sad Kal-El. No, not Smallville Kal-El, he's fine. Or the Superman musical Kal-El from 1975, luckily he's dead. They discover Superman the movie Kal-El, who is the paragon of truth. Oh, and while the entire multiverse is dying, a bunch of heroes get help from John Constantine, fight Jonah Hex, and try and resurrect Oliver in a Lazarus pit. Yeah. <laughs> Just the meta-plotting here is incredibly clumsy, because you've had the Monitor gather up this group of heroes, and now he says, okay, now you go need to go find another group of heroes yes. or paragons. And it's just so convoluted and... Why didn't he just go get those people himself in the first place? Because he needed to build those people. Mm. I actually kind of liked this. It is convoluted, but it mostly holds together. It's unknown why we need paragons or why they have these specific names. We haven't read the Book of Destiny that much, but what we do know is that sometimes the person who is going to be a paragon isn't ready yet, and we have see saw in Supergirl John get tested and improved on, made level two John, <laughs> to become a paragon, and now we're seeing that for some of these other characters, specifically Kate, that it's more complicated to try and set up the situation which allows these characters to actually reach their state of mind that will allow them to be the paragon. So it's complicated and a little chess piecey, but for the most part it worked for me. And it did give us an excuse to meet a lot of very interesting worlds. That is quite true. I enjoyed that uh, Mick is a good babysitter. <laughs> a good babysitter and a questionable romance author. Pretty funny. Yes. <laughs> I enjoyed that Ray is excited to find that uh, Bruce Wayne is Batman on that world. I also really enjoyed, because of the meta, the actual actor, people were kind of um, amazed that... Uh, Superman of Superman Returns universe looks so much like Ray Palmer. Well, <laughs> <laughs> they were not backing away from that one, were they? <laughs> no, they hung a lantern on it. In fact, when uh, Supergirl unexpectedly encounters Ruth Superman, she says, wow, Ray, you're all jacked up. <laughs> <laughs> when did you get so buff? <laughs> and that was just funny. And it's just down to posture, basically, which is how, you know, Chris Reeves did an amazing job of switching from Clark to uh, Superman just with his posture and tone of voice. And you get that a little bit in this episode, too, which was neat. This series gave us an amazing view of what you can do with acting, costume, and makeup, mm -hmm. considering Batwoman's Luke on Earth-99 versus Earth-1. Right. Which is stunning. Oh, yeah. He's a nebbish on uh, Kate Kane's Luke, but he is a tough guy <laughs> <laughs> in uh, evil Batman's world. <laughs> 
maybe not evil, but grimdark Batman. <laughs> yeah, I quite like the trip to Earth-99. We get a couple wonderful things. We get Kevin Conroy as Batman. <laughs> yep. And boy, does he sound right. The question I have is, and I'm going to say my interpretation, that this universe is in fact the batman the animated series batman universe and they're just saying that in that batman the animated universe guess what it did not go well for bruce wayne and batman near the end <laughs> well i had been wondering if it was supposed to be the batman versus superman universe but i actually haven't ever seen that movie because the reviews were so discouraging so i couldn't say I would say it is actually a, a dystopic ending for the Batman the Animated Series, but I expect there's quite a number of different opinions about it. Mm -hmm. I find it an interesting setup that Batman describes how he first killed one person and then told Kate how it's going to affect her when she kills her first person and then she kills him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hmm. a slippery slope, but we'll hope that uh, she doesn't slide. Before we move farther on, the first Earth that they visit for the Superman, well, sad Kal-El search, is Earth 75, which is actually a reference to the 1975 ABC musical, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, <laughs> which is on YouTube. I watched about two minutes of it. It is horrible. It is so bad. It is unbelievable. That Superman deserved to die. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Should we move on? I think I'd move on to Superman the movie Superman. Of Superman Returns. So I love that when they go to the Daily Planet and they encounter Ruth Superman and he's very nice, but when they start to say, we need a moment of your time, he tries to bounce them to his secretary. <laughs> he's a very busy man, you see. <laughs> well, he doesn't really have context for who they are yet. <laughs> Right, right. And that's fair. <laughs> Which is totally fair, but I mean, I guess he's running the Daily Planet nowadays. He's the editor-in-chief. That was the name of the pl plaque on the office. Because uh, the guy they call The Reject, which apparently is the Joker, killed most of the Daily Planet people, including Lois and Perry and Jimmy and everyone he ever cared about. Clark now knows how many people had to die for him to become king. Right. So this proves that this is the right guy because the Monitor told them to look for a man who lost everything. And yep, <laughs> that pretty much fits the bill here. It is pretty great. Superman Returns being a sequel to Superman 1 and Superman 2. Right. And they give us a little bit of the Superman theme in this as well. Mm -hmm. It's all really quite good. The funniest thing, I think, is when Superman refers to this not being the first time he's fought himself. This is, of course, a reference to Superman 3, which isn't even actually canon for this universe anymore, but whatever. <laughs> it was all pretty good. Yeah. And really, they'd pulled off the fight way better than I expected them to be able to. Yeah. My concern was, hey, isn't this fighting going to get a lot of people killed with, you know, glass shattering and falling on the streets below and, and stuff? But I guess uh, with the universe's ending, I guess we can't worry about that too much. Some incidental casualties in a battle. Priorities matter sometimes. <laughs> Because really, when all of this is happening, we now have this subplot 
for them trying to track down uh, Lazarus Pit to save Oliver. And I really am having issues with these heroes going off and trying to save Oliver when the entire universe is going to fall apart. Yes, uh, you're right, of course. The slight justification for that is that Ollie wasn't supposed to die yet, and so maybe they still need him to save the universe. I don't know if they know that. Just because he's such a great leader, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's very safe to say that that's any of these people's motivation. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's really not. They just want their Oliver. This also gives us some nice scenes with Kara and Kate. I quite like some of their scenes together and the little sub-stories that we're seeing between the two of them as they try and um, find their courage and find their hope. Right. So let me just do a little side trip here. I had mentioned uh, the... Uh Kara complimenting Ruth Superman's looks. There's some weird flirting going on in this episode because there's there's that. There's also Kate being sort of predatorily sexually aggressive with Lex when Lex shows up. She kind of flicks under his chin and says, I'm friendly, but it seems to be a threat. <laughs> that was, I think, entirely a, a threat. That was, I think, a get in your personal space mm -hmm. because Kate is presenting herself as being one who considers approaching personal space as a threat. Mm -hmm. She negatively responds to Ray entering his personal space and maybe him trying to flirt with her. That didn't go well. Mm -hmm. And I would interpret that as how she is aggressive in that way. She's going to get inside of his personal space and make him feel uncomfortable. I think it did succeed in that. Um, <laughs> so good for her. It's been a while since anyone really knocked Lex off balance. Though I have to ask, why are they keeping Lex in a energy barrier inside of the bridge of the Wave Rider for this? I don't understand why he's not locked in a cell somewhere not watching all of their plans. And, and maybe, again, the monitor needs him to be. It's really kind of unclear. But it just seems a bizarre place to keep Lex so that you can keep him around to make quips. Yeah. I mean, if, if I had to keep Lex around at all, I would keep him in the most secure way that I could. But yeah, since, since the monitor is being so closed-mouthed and he won't tell people why he wants Lex around or, you know, won't tell people much of anything anyway, I guess you just have to trust destiny or something? I suppose. I think uh, locking up him up in a jail in an earth that's uh, pretty soon to be destroyed sounds like a pretty good plan, but oh well. <laughs> was there anything else from part two you'd like to cover before we move on to part three? Oh, just what a pleasure it was to see Smallville and uh, Tom Welling had given up his power a la Superman 2 <laughs> so that he could uh, raise a family. It, it was just really nice to see that, and I, I thought that they did it so well. I just enjoyed uh, his uh, perfunctory denial of knowing what they were talking about, <laughs> <laughs> and then just uh, the projection of his personality, and then when Lex showed up, it's always good to see Lex get punched out. <laughs> even by a non-superpowered Clark. And of course, it's always fun that we get to see the Lois from that world, who we've already seen, because we get to see her, of course, multiple times. The actors for the Loises have been shared in so many interesting ways in this show as well. I, I quite liked most of his interaction with Lex. I, I will 
hold that I have an issue with it being suggested that Lex does not believe that Clark is Superman in most universes. That seems a little far-fetched, especially considering he knows who Kara is. That just seems bizarre. It seems really hard that he would not make that connection, and or that he would... Apparently he has considered it, but denies it just because Clark can't see without his glasses. Has he not considered the fact that he might be acting? This is the thing where, how do you have secret identities with really smart people? Well, you make those really smart people act really dumb. <laughs> and, and that was, I think, a little sad and unnecessary, considering that this Lex really basically knows everything at this point. Um, he might as well be omniscient, given that he's walking around the book of, of Destiny. And it just seemed unnecessary to to make that implication. Well, other than uh, Kate finding out that she ends up uh, being the uh, the paragon of destiny after all. Paragon of courage. Oh, sorry. Paragon of courage. It's, it's hard to keep them all separate. I had to write them all down. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it for uh, episode two. I'm ready to move on if you are. Part three recap. So much death. We learn that John is the paragon of honor, Barry is the paragon of love, Ryan Choi is the paragon of humanity, Diggle, Sarah, Mia, and John Constantine visit Lucifer to enter purgatory to rescue Oliver's soul, but the specter arrives with a better offer for Oliver, so they leave without it. Pariah, Killer Frost, Vibe, The Flash, and suddenly Black Lightning try and rescue Earth-90 Flash, but he sacrifices himself to destroy the antimatter wave machine. Iris talks Choi into joining, but we're down to just one Earth, and the Monitor is killed. In the end, everything but the Paragons is wiped out, and Pariah sends the Paragons to the vanishing point, except Lex takes Kal-El's spot. <laughs> well, let's see. First of all, I would have been happy if Ryan Choi had been named Kevin Tran instead, but I guess Supernatural is not part of this multiverse after all. So close, though. So close. <laughs> <laughs> But Ryan Choi is canonical to the comics, as I understand it. I do not follow them, but there was a reference to uh, that in the Wikipedia, of course. Right. Before we go away from cameos, uh, it was also fun to see that little uh, Birds of Prey clip. Yep. <laughs> so it's it's fun that uh, Ryan Choi was a fan of Ray Palmer, and he's so excited to meet him. But when Ryan finds out that he himself has a special destiny, he really doesn't want it. And he says, if the world is ending, I want to go be with my family, which is pretty far away from the heroic mold where, you know, if the world is ending, I want to stop that from happening. An interesting choice. There's a lot of fairly pro-family stuff in this, and I thought it was actually a kind of sweet touch that he would want to, because he does not see how he could possibly save the entire universe or all of the universes. And to be fair, none of these people really understand how they're going to stop the end of the universes anyway. Right. So it seems fair that he would consider just wanting to be with his family. And I liked that that is a reasonable reaction someone could have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they don't yell at him or try very hard to change his mind. So, right, they're not really criticizing him for the choice, which I also thought was an interesting way to, to treat that. Yeah, I think it was very nicely done. And with Iris having to be in the position of trying to talk him into it, it worked. Yeah, let's see. I liked that Iris got things to do during this episode, even if it is... Mostly just talking. To be fair, a lot of these shows would go a lot better if people could just talk a little more. <laughs> true, true. So, 
Diggle gets upset by numerous things, including Ollie coming back without a soul and being told that Lila is gone and uh, being upset at the monitor for that. You know, where is she? She could be with the adversary. Um, (laughs) Cisco, being Cisco, wants to workshop the anti-monitor's name. (laughs) Very offended by that he is. Yes, but seems strangely resigned when monitor says, you know, bing, you have your powers back, despite Cisco's stated wish. You know, he, he gave up his powers for a reason, but the Monitor doesn't care. We need you. You're drafted. The Monitor generally does not care about anyone's feelings or other opinions in the show. The Monitor, as we described in the last podcast, is a bit of a jerk. Yes. I have to say that Vi being back would have hit me more if I had been catching up with the Flash and knowing that Vibe had gone away. Ah. Uh, but it's okay. Right. I had been watching. And there have been some interesting discussions on the Flash about consent of, you know, whether to cure metahumans or not, depending on what they think of the matter. And uh, so that's been kind of an ongoing issue. And Cisco had really felt that uh, he was not being his true self when he was Vibe, and he gave that up because he wanted to focus on other parts of himself, like, you know, how intelligent he is. And now that's back, and I don't know if after all this is over, if he survives Crisis, if he'll be allowed to give up his powers again, or if he just has to deal with being Vibe forevermore. There is a lot of questions at the end of these three episodes about how much of this is going to have to be wiped out to get us back to where we were originally. I don't know if we are getting back to where we were originally. I I think that is an interesting question, which we'll we'll get to as we get to the end of the story. I think it's interesting that Pariah also shows up here, but he basically walks around with them purely as a plot device as being a a storage of a key to a door. Mm -hmm. It just seems such a bizarre use of Pariah. He's not there for any particular use. What I really don't understand is they're going after the anti-monitor and they only send like three people and a bunch of other people are left are sent off to try and save as many lives as possible and again there's a prioritization problem here for saving individual lives versus everything is going to vanish and i just it just seemed strange that a lot of the scene with the anti-wave machine has so few people in it but i really like the content to be fair mm-hmm. yeah priorities are are very strange <laughs> In this thing, but, you know, some people are just focused on the personal and what they want, and maybe maybe they think it'll all work out, or maybe they think there are, you know, enough people working on the big problems and we need to fix our own problems while we can. I don't know. Well, it's hard because a lot of superhero shows are about you always save the people. True. The trolley problem isn't really a problem that wants to get asked in these types of shows. Right. Well, we've discussed before about how the kind of leaders you want to follow are the ones who do care about the individuals and not just the uh, multitude. But it just seems a bit strange in this case. (laughs) I have to admit, I find it the little skip into Earth 666, otherwise known as the Lucifer TV show, was kind of fun but the funniest thing of of, at all is that they go to purgatory and purgatory is a nice bit of bc coastline it doesn't look that bad i wouldn't mind visiting (laughs) 
Yeah, it's uh, Lian Yu, which is translated as purgatory as far as the Arrowverse is concerned. So, (laughs) yeah, that was funny. But just before they got there, the thing with Lucifer that really amused me was that he has the power to make anyone tell what their true desire is. And it's usually something somewhat embarrassing or or sinful or criminal or something. So he uses it on Mia to make her tell her deepest, darkest desire. And she just wants her dad back. <laughs> he is a kind of scary character. I've considered watching that show and I, I might actually. This horrible, evil marketing crossover might work and I might actually watch some of these shows. It's horrible. <laughs> well... The one that I hope really works on people is that they will see this Jefferson Pierce guy and watch some Black Lightning, because that is a great show that deserves more people to watch. Uh, I've watched some of Lucifer. I watched the first two seasons pretty regularly, and it has its amusing moments, and it also has a lot of horrible police procedure where you say those people should have been fired (laughs) long ago. But uh, if you can just suspend your disbelief of horrible police work, (laughs) the character moments can be pretty interesting. And, you know, the evolution of Lucifer as a sometimes semi-empathetic character is interesting to watch. Lucifer is the quintessential Mm anti-hero. Right. The thing with the, um, whichever Earth it is, where the Flash is running on the treadmill to power the uh, antimatter cannon, which when he is freed from it, he says he has to get right back on it or else things will explode, which I don't understand why that is worse than powering the antimatter cannon, but there it is. That's the plot device there. I'll give it. I got got some headcanon for you. Okay. It exploding will only destroy some number of Earths, but there are only some number of Earths left. Mm. At the beginning, it probably would have been a fair choice to make because the rest of the wave hadn't destroyed almost all of the Earths yet. But at this point, if you get off it, there's only so many Earths left and all of them will instantly get destroyed in the smaller but more localized and instant instantaneous death. As a kill switch, I think it, it, it worked reasonably well. We get to see Black Lightning show up, and he effectively operates as a time delay. Barry has this line, every one second that we waste here, another Earth dies. And we're pretty sure that count doesn't work, because I think at this point there's only seven <laughs> Earths left. Right. But hey, Barry may not have known that. But really, uh, Black Lightning is just kind of a delay to allow the drama to unfold. And it is nice seeing Black Lightning here. It's a bit of a pity Black Lightning couldn't have a more involved crossover. But it's nice to see him there. And I really, really do quite like some of the stuff here with the Earth-90 Flash. Yeah, and let's pause for a second and talk about Black Lightning. The... Black Lightning Episode 9 was not taken as part of the Crisis crossover parts 1, 2, and 3. What happened in that episode the same week is that wacky things were going on with the timeline and somehow three alternative timelines or or universes or whatever came together for a brief time. So you had the Black Lightning timeline that we've been watching on the show. Earth something. We don't know what. Whichever number. We have a timeline where Black Lightning's daughter 
Jennifer, had gone complicit with the evil federal agency that's been occupying their hometown of Freeland. And she basically has bought into the harshest worldview possible. And we have one from our timeline where, where we've been watching, where she's been going along a little bit with the occupiers to try to uh, secure advantages for her family and try to help fight a different <laughs> invading force. And we also have a third timeline where Jen gave up her powers in order to stop other citizens of her town from being turned into superpowered government tools against their will. So, all of these people are in dialogue with each other as the timelines merge there. And that was an interesting episode, kind of a what-if, and I thought it was really good, and I'm sad that it's not included as part of the crisis, because a lot of people who watched parts 1, 2, and 3 are not going to go and watch Black Lightning. On the other hand, it really is pretty far outside the through line of what's happening with Crisis. So I can understand why. I just, I'm a little sad that, you know, this wasn't more of an opportunity to introduce people and, and encourage them to go watch that show. I agree with everything you just said. I am really amazed for the uh, production team on Black Lightning, that they basically had this opportunity to kind of take part in this. And they took the idea of the Infinite Earths and they used it in a somewhat different way, but still really a valid way. And they just did such a good episode inside of their universe. It is such a good episode. Yeah, it was really great for examining the choices that people have been making on the show and why you choose, you know, what you're hoping for and what you decide to settle for, you know, making sacrifices or getting whatever you can out of the situation and how that affects you and the people around you. Yeah, it was a really, really good Black Lightning episode. So I really encourage anyone who has just watched Crisis 1, 2, and 3 to go and watch that. And I think they do a good enough job of explaining. You won't understand everything that's happening <laughs> in that episode if you haven't been watching Black Lightning, but I think it's worth it all the same. Absolutely. And I think of any of these shows having a dramatic impact on their original series, I think that one will actually have a relatively dramatic impact. Because in that story, Jen, who's really the main character in this crossover episode, is talking to, I think, the Jen on Earth 1 and the Jen on Earth 2. I think they've subtitled it that. She is somewhat in lack of communication as to what's going on and how her choices are affecting things. And she's, she gets to see what some of these choices are resulting in. And uh, I would expect she's going to come out of this uh, a somewhat different person. I find it interesting that also they just took an idea of the Infinite Earths because the Infinite Earths was kind of a way of mashing all of the Earths together. And in some ways, this episode has done that better than what we've so far seen on the actual Crisis episodes. Overall, I think it was just a well-used, well-done episode. We've always had this question of, is Black Lightning on Earth 1 or Earth 2? And the answer apparently is yes, but it's even a more depressing version of the story than we're getting. It's funny that every alternative universe they show us in any of these episodes, they're always pretty much worse than the one we came in. Other than, I suppose, the Smallville one. That was the only happy one. <laughs> Boy, we're watching the happy versions of this show. Yeah. <laughs> 
let's see. Right, you you get the thing where when uh, Jefferson Pierce Black Lightning encounters Superman, he says that uh, you're real. <laughs> so you know, you wonder if there are echoes of the other universes in the crisis universes, um, you know, in, in those timelines. <sighs> anyway, although I'm sad that Black Lightning Episode Nine is a thing that CW treats as a thing apart from the crisis, if we don't get that, I am pleased that we got as much of an introduction to Black Lightning as we did in Part three of Crisis, where Monitor info dumps that <laughs> Black Lightning is an educator and a hero and a good man. Pariah. Oh, Pariah does does that? Sorry. Pariah as plot device. <laughs> Pariah as plot device. Anyway. And I thought that Black Lightning got a really nice conversation with Barry about the losses that they had suffered. That conversation was one of the better scenes in all of these series. I was really impressed with that scene. Yeah, it really was nice. They both lost their fathers in a way. Uh, Black Lightning, his his father was murdered uh, when he was only 12, and Barry's father was framed for murder, and so they lived most of their lives apart. And basically, one of the things that is really nice about Flash is that Barry is a nice guy, and he inspires other people to be nice sometimes, and sometimes he just helps people. He also does stupid things with timelines and stuff, but... Oh, he does. <laughs> <laughs> he is a nice, likable guy, and he helps inspire other people to be better versions of themselves. And I just really enjoyed Jefferson and Barry's conversation. And really, I quite liked the stuff between Earth-90 Flash and Barry, too. Uh, the Earth-90 Flash, as yet another one of Barry's dads, worked really well. Yes. And we even get flashbacks from the 1990s Flash show, which I did watch. <laughs> <laughs> and we even get some flashbacks from that show. And a lot of that is really nice, um, leading up to the unfortunate sacrifice. Yeah, I liked that. I have faith in you. I have faith in you, too. <laughs> that was <laughs> exactly. just really nice. I also like that there, there was a moment there where uh, Cisco makes a call that Barry probably wouldn't have made. And, you know, Cisco says, you made me the team leader back when Barry had been preparing everyone on Team Flash for his disappearance, as he had been warned by the Monitor. And Cisco says, you made me the team leader, and I have to make the hard choices sometimes. And so that was well done. I do really like, in these parts, they've been doing a good job of picking up and weaving together various plot threads from all of the shows. And I certainly quibble with some of the logic of some of the things that happened in one through three, but uh, I think overall they did a really nice job of uh, weaving everything together. They didn't quite give Cisco the Spock line of the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few. <laughs> But they could have. They could have, yes. An IP problem, I suppose. <laughs> but no, this ends uh, and at a very uh, dark place, of course, because pretty much by the end of this, everything except for the Earth 1 is destroyed, then the Earth 1 is destroyed, then the Wave Rider is destroyed. Pariah does his last act, which is send everyone to the vanishing point. And then, unfortunately, the, the sort of almost sad scene where Lex Luthor has rewritten future enough to make him show up there too. I really have no idea uh, where they're going to go from the lack of anything. I don't either. Isn't it interesting? It is. <laughs> 
in the comic, I've only read up to the point where all of the Earths are effectively combined down. There seems to be a goal of the Monitor, uh, before he's killed by Herbinger, to basically try and use this as a mechanism of combining all the Earths together so that we have one new single non-multiverse universe rather than destroying everything and replacing it with one universe, which is what this anti-monitor wants to do. I'm going to now have to go and finish reading the comic to see how at least that tries to answer these problems. One thing that does happen in the comics is Supergirl dies, and I think it's obvious that they're trying to play with that a little bit in that they give Kara the hope that she might be able to sacrifice herself to return Earth-38. Mm-hmm. And they seem to go that way and suggest it, but they then pull back. And I, I think that's an interesting way of playing with this, uh, given that Supergirl dies in the original comic. Right. Yeah. One thing that I'm pondering is if they do combine all the shows onto one Earth from now on, then that's going to be really hard to explain how it is that when there are problems that Team Flash does not call on Supergirl for help. I would be incredibly disappointed if Black Lightning was the only survivor from his planet if they don't somehow restore Freelandia and and bring back his family. The setup here, really, there is no option. I mean, this is the point where they even got rid of Earth-1. So at this point, it's not a question of whether they're going to unravel this and back out of it. It's just a question of how much. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and therefore, we're going to see some type of multiverse probably continue inside of this plot line. But are they going to just bring back all of it? It feels a bit sad to bring back all of it. It is a point of the infinite Earth. It feels like a cheat. It really feels like a cheat. If they just wave their hands and nothing in this whole thing ends up mattering. But it's not like they transport leviathan to earth one mm. like mm. there's plot lines going on in these other universes right they're not going to combine all of it they're far more likely that when they unravel some of this they're going to unravel most of it and they may just take all of the shows they don't care about and they say well all of those ones are gone so all the canceled shows all the shows that are don't really matter i'm amazed some of the stuff they pulled in they even gave us a shot from titans <laughs> that was wild but hey they died But it's just now a question of what they're going to unravel it into. And maybe they're going to unravel it and there's only going to be three Earths, four Earths, or something like that. Or they're going to say, more likely, they're going to bring all of the Earths and multiverse back. But they're just going to say that at this point, some massive horrible thing happened that will make it far harder for future crossovers or something like that. Except maybe between these two Earths. Mm. But I don't know. I hope they can figure out a way of doing this that doesn't feel like a cheat. And just killing Oliver is not sufficient for it to not feel like a cheat. Right. As for what happens next... I will certainly be eagerly watching in January to find out how this all gets resolved. Again, I would encourage our listeners, if they skipped Black Lightning, to watch that episode. Probably also the Biffcast has their own take on everything that happened in parts one through three, and it is very worthwhile to go listen to that cast too, if you haven't already. And I think that's about it for this time. Okay. If uh, any of our listeners want to continue the conversation with us, we're on Twitter at SG Supercast. And we are on the Incomparable Members Slack channel. Hey, you can find us hanging out on the TV subchannel there. Thanks to the Incomparable for hosting us. And, of course, thanks to the listeners. Bye-bye.